so I think those are all the announcements. Just wanted to get through them real quick and uh, get right to the lesson today. The long and winding road, worship from inception to today. I think the last time I taught, I think I taught on worship, but it was long enough ago that you probably forgot some. But it's so important that there's some new things or some different things that I want to bring up in regard to worship. And in this series, The Long and Winding Road, I wanted to specifically look back to where worship began and trace to where we are today because there's a definite thread of how worship was developed, how it was revealed, and then how we are to practice that worship and again, how important it is. So there we go. So a couple of worship words. Um, I talked about these a, a while back, but this one is a Hebrew word that I've never mentioned before, and you might have heard of it before. If you read Hebrew, I have it there in parentheses, but it is shachach, shachach, which is a little guttural end for the Hebrew, the, the most used Hebrew word for worship. There are other Hebrew words that we're not talking about today, but this word has the idea of to, to bow down, to kiss the hand or even to kiss the ground. If, uh, if you've ever had the opportunity to do a face plant, then you probably didn't realize it, but you were worshiping uh, something or somewhere that this is a picture of what shaka is, where you are bowing down as low as you can get, even to the point of kissing the earth, kissing the ground in front of someone that you revere or that you respect. When you do this or some semblance of this, you're communicating something to the person that you're around, right? You, you understand what I'm saying? So in this culture, we don't do a lot of bowing. We do more handshaking. But in Asian cultures, they do a lot more of this in the sense of, of bowing to show respect or reverence to someone that they respect and love. It can be done not only to God... It could also be done to false gods as well as other people. So again, in our Asian cultures, when you see a, a bow to someone, you're saying that that person, I, I respect you, I love you, you're more important than me, perhaps, um, whether it be a cultural thing, whether it be maybe something they did for you and you want to express thanks for what they've done, you, you humble yourself and submit, and if you have a bald spot, you even show that as further submission to the person that you are honoring. So this word is not just to God, but also a way to express, well, worship to one another. And you would say, well, wait just a minute. Don't tell us that we're supposed to be worshiping each other and God, which is true. You should only worship God. That's what Jesus said when he was talking to Satan in the wilderness, when he was tempted to bow down and worship Satan. Jesus quoted the Old Testament and he said, you only worship the Lord God, only worship him. He's the only one deserving of worship. But at the same time, on a different level, you need to understand that we do a semblance of worship to one another. And it's a way that we honor and respect one another. And it's acceptable and it is is okay as long as you do not worship someone else more than God. But God set it up that not only are we to worship him, but we are to love and respect one another. And when you love and respect someone horizontally in these horizontal relationships, 
God receives the worship in that vertical relationship you have with him. It's one of the ways that we worship God by revering and respecting one another, particularly if the other person does not deserve it. Because who revered and honored us when we did not deserve it? The creator God who said, you should only worship me. To a degree, he actually worshiped his creation and honored them by giving them what they could not get on their own and allowed them back into a relationship that they themselves had severed. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the example We love God because he first loved us. So when you love other people, sometimes you have to love them first, whether or not they will ever love you because Christ died for us, whether or not you accept him on his terms, he went ahead and took the first step. And it is example to us, not only that we are thankful to God and we worship him for that, but that we revere and respect one another and as a result, worshiping God. So the Greek word, which we have talked about before, proskuneo, is another word that is actually translated for shaka in the Septuagint, which again is the, Hebrew, uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. So usually proskuneo is the, is the word that's translated, and it means basically the same thing, to bow down, to kiss the hand, to kiss the earth, to show reverent respect, to, to lower yourself among someone that deserves a higher place than you. And that's the word that we see in the Greek New Testament more times than not. There are other ones, latereo and a, a few other ones and um, that you would see. Now, worship is a word that we derive from the Old English, worship, which you see in parentheses. That's an Old English term. And it is a compound word, which the worth there is what our word for worth is. So the word means worth and then sheep is what, we understand today as a scribe. That's what the uh, transliteration, not transliteration, but the definition of ship, what they would say then meant to a scribe, to, to give or to place. So our worship word that we get from the old English word is to ascribe worth. So if you see someone that you appreciate and honor, you can honor them by bowing or lowering yourself. Sometimes you want to communicate through words or writing like we're doing right here. In fact, as you fill out this card that we're giving to Mark Lanier, we're actually kind of worshiping him a little bit. We're encouraging him. We're lifting him up as a sense of our appreciation for him. It's a little bit of worship. Just be careful not to do it more than than God. So you better go home and write a really big thank you note to God to counter what you just did for Mark. Otherwise, you might be guilty of idol worship. So we ascribe through writing or through, through speaking, ascribing worth to someone. Now, uh, Mark and I were talking about this word, and he was reminding me that it is a particular kind of, of word that gives a little more of um, kind of an, an intensive reflexive of the, the word. I'm talking about shakar, the Hebrew, because Mark is, knows more Hebrew than I do. And in that sense, it is intensive which means it's intensified. It's, it's a really big deal. And then on top of that, it's reflexive, uh, reflexive in the sense that I'm the one doing it. I have to make myself do it. It doesn't just come naturally. I have to work at doing it. Intensified and reflexive in the Hebrew in order to 
to do that. So it's a really big deal as we take care of worshiping and ascribing worth and honor. So to move on, there is a definite priority to worship. And all through scripture, which uh, I've had the great opportunity to read a, a great book by John MacArthur calls, called Worship the Ultimate Priority. <laughs> what do you think it's about? <laughs> yeah. Well, when I was in the, I guess I was a sophomore in high school, I was talking to my youth minister, uh, went to a church in, in Dallas, Shallow Terrace Baptist there in East Dallas. We were talking about different things, and um, uh, he he said, Brent, I, I know what would be helpful to you, and he pulled out a book. Now, I don't read. Okay, I know how to read, but I don't read. I don't enjoy reading, you know. My kids, they love to read. I do not love to read. I read the Bible, and I'll try to read a few other things. It just takes me so long because I have to process it, and, well, frankly, I'm slow. So it just takes me a long time, and it's frustrating to me, but... He gave me this book and he said, you should read it. So even though I did not read, I thought, okay, I'm going to honor my youth minister and I'm going to do what he said. And I read this book, little paperback by John, Dr. John MacArthur that changed my life. As the kid that grew up in church going to worship services, singing songs of worship, in our youth group we had what we called a time of praise and worship. I knew worship was a big part of my church life and my spiritual life. And I just assumed, based on what I'd seen in regard to the word worship, what worship meant. But as I read this book, uh, my paradigm shift was turned upside down, and I began to understand what worship is about. And Dr. MacArthur, he talked a lot about the priority of worship, which I already knew it was important. But as he went through scripture, he brought out a few things that I'm not going to take the time to go through each of these because of time. But I did write a lesson. I did what Mark Lanier does every week. He writes a whole paper lesson. And at, after I spent all night doing it uh, Friday night, I stayed up all night writing. And then I sent it to him and he gave me some ideas and uh, some other friends did as well. And then I, I wrote some more. And then it finally got time that it was, you know, Saturday night at 10. And I was like, I, I got to go to bed. I have to do a PowerPoint too, which uh, I pulled through that together. I'm just saying that I'm going to send you my lesson, my actual lesson that uh, Mark helped me to, to write and um, some of the things that I've learned throughout my life regard to worship. So if you don't catch everything, it'll give you a chance to study further if you so desire. But of these, I want to talk about one is the Israelite camp, for, camp formation and the importance of worship. In the center of the Israelite camp, when they were fleeing from Egypt and heading to the promised land, which took them 40 years, they had a long time to do this day after day that they would pick up the tent, pack it up, and they would go. And then they would, might stay for a few days and they would pack up and go again. Each time the Levites would set up the tabernacle where? In the center of of the camp. It was set up first, marked out so that everyone else knew where to camp. And the camp was the concentric circles as it went out away from the center of life. And that is the tabernacle. The priests or the Levites were the tribe that, that camped around the tabernacle. They were the ones that served, that worked, that carried all of the tent parts of the tabernacle. They're the ones that put it together and they tore it down. They were responsible. The Levites, the priests, were also the ones who did the priestly duties in the tabernacle. So they're next, which Moses and Aaron were of the Levite tribe. They are literally priests as Levites as a part of what they did. So they camped right next to the tabernacle. And then all the other tribes of Israel would camp around that. So every morning when you got out of your tent, have you ever gone camping? When you when you you go to bed and it's either hot or cold, it's either one or the other. It's really 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 hot or freezing cold. When you get up in the next morning, what do you have to do? You have to get out of your tent and go to the bathroom. 
that all, all and, and it's just rough. You're like, oh, do I really have to go? How can I manage not going to the bathroom? Can't do it. You're going to get out and you're going to go to the restroom. The first thing that they saw when they got out, what was that? Well, the tent in front of them. But then eventually they would see God's tent, the, the dwelling place of God, that he was very obvious that this was the place where you would worship me. Like Mark said last week, God, Jehovah God, Elohim, Yahweh, he was the God that said, you only will worship me in one place. Don't make a lot of high places to be convenient for you. There's only one place, one tabernacle, one temple until the new covenant and he lives in our hearts and now he's with each of us. But then when he was demonstrating himself, he was very particular about worship. And in that tabernacle, what did they do? Day in and day night, day out, they sacrificed animals. That was... Uh, and there's these other examples of the priority of worship, I encourage you to read about those later. But I'm going to move on to worship that happened before time began, before time. And we don't know much about before time. The Bible doesn't talk much about it, and none of us were there, right? So we just have to kind of go on a few things that we can derive, but it's never really been taught. wasn't important to God for us to understand all of the pre-earth, pre-universe things. But one of the pre-existent beings were angels. Again, we don't know much about angels. We see them a few times and uh, still a little confusing and mysterious. Maybe you'll find out more. But one thing, the Greek word for angel is angelos or angelos. When the two gammas, which look like little T's, those are gammas. Oh, they look like Y's here. They're, they have a, a G sound. But when two gammas are together, they have an N-G pronunciation. I always teach this because this is like one of the five Greek things that I know. So I always teach it. So gamma gamma. So the word here is angelos and it means it's translated angel or messenger. So could be that the angels were the messengers of God, which they certainly did proclaim messages for God to man. Remember, Jesus was born and who came and told the, the shepherds in the field? The angelos. They were the messengers and they came. And so they are, are definitely messengers. And these messengers exist with God in heaven before earth was created. And while they were there, what was their job? To worship God. That's, that's what they do. Now, I'm going to say the difference between angels and man once man was created is that although we have free will, the angels do not have a provision of free will. So even though they could choose to do what they want or what, what, what they could choose to do what they want to do because we know that even though their responsibility was to worship and tend to the heavenly being God, that there was a group of them that rebelled. Satan was cast out. He didn't just fall from grace. He was cast out and thrown out because he ceased to worship God. When we cease to worship God in this earth, in this time, you don't die immediately. You're not struck down to the ground and you're dead. If that happened, there would be more true worshipers in the world today. The rest of you would be dead, whoever you are. I don't know. But that would really be motivational. But for Satan, he he did something that he could choose but was not allowed any grace. There was no grace for the angels. And so worship was very different. And it, not just him, but one-third of the angels chose to rebel. And they, too, were cast out of heaven because of a lack of worship. That's what it boiled down to. They would rather worship and set themselves up to be worshiped themselves. 
So that's just a picture of worship before creation. So now at creation, during creation, when, when God created, it says that he created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning he did this, and the first command in the whole Bible is what? Do you know? Let there be light. Isn't that awesome? The first command is light, which God defines as himself, that God is light. Jesus is defined as being light. And then you yourselves are said that once you are in faith, you are the light of the world. We're created in the image of God. And that's what God's doing. He is light. Interesting that his very first command was let there be light. And what happened as a result of that command going forth from creator God? What does the Bible say? There was light. Now, if any of you are going to argue with me that whether or not that happened, neither of us can. I can't really prove my point, nor can you prove the opposite, because once again, we were not there, so we can't really say. We can just trust on God's word, which I believe in faithfulness that it is God's word. It's true. And God gave the command. It was immediately obeyed by, I don't know what, the, the whatever the creation things were. He said it, and it happened. It was worship to God. Because when you obey God immediately and perfectly, that is the best worship you can give to someone else. And that's what happened. He continued the other days of creation. There were six days, which Mark reminds us that God would form and then he would fill. And then the next day he would form and he would fill. And as he formed and filled, everything happened just as he commanded. Creation perfectly worshiped. We should take a cue from creation immediately and perfectly do exactly what we understand God to ask us, to tell us, to command us to do. That is great worship. So that happened in perfect obedience. Now, as creation happened in Psalm 19, we're reminded among other places that as creation exists now, other than man, other than man, we're the only group that has free will, the opportunity to choose and be able to get away with not choosing the right thing for a certain amount of time, which is grace. We see creation in Psalm 19 that says, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. That means 24 hours, day and night. The creation is perfectly and immediately worshiping God just the way they were intended to by doing exactly what they were created to do. If you want to know how to worship God, find out what he wants in your life, what your purpose is, what your creation is, what you're created to do, and then do it. That is worshiping God. So there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice, the creation, whose voice is not heard. Yet it says their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Without speaking, they say a lot that we love God, that we're going to do exactly what he called us to do. Creation constantly worships. That's not my concoction. It's what God's word says about his creation. Now, we're going to move on to the next slide of as time begins, the next slice of life. As time begins, we have Adam and Eve in the garden. What were Adam and Eve doing? Well, I I can't tell you specifically because the Bible doesn't list all the things they were doing. 
Mark reminds us that they had responsibility. They had to name the animals. Um, they had to subdue the earth. I'm not sure what exactly how that works, but they were doing it because they were perfect at the time. They were doing a good job of doing what God created them to do. They had one command, don't eat of the tree. And up to some point, they were obeying the command, not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As a result, they were worshiping God through their obedience, through their perfect relationship as they communed with God in the garden. And he was teaching them, I suspect, all about himself. In the garden, then we have, we know that disobedience happens. So if obedience is worship, disobedience is unworship or not worshiping. And it was a really big deal, right? Not worshiping God ended up being a huge deal. I don't know, maybe bigger deal than what Adam and Eve were thinking because they, they might have been thinking maybe we're so close to God that he'll cut us some slack. And let, let's see what happens when we don't do exactly what he asked us to do. It was a really big deal. I can imagine Adam and Eve walking around, you know, years after the fall where someone was tilling the soil, you know, and Adam's like, oh, sorry, that was my fault. I fell and God cursed the ground and that's why you have to do that. And Eve was probably in a tent somewhere helping a lady bear a child and she's screaming out in pain and Eve's like, you know, I'm sorry. That's kind of my fault. I kind of caused that whole thing to happen. So true that they did, but we would have done the same and we certainly do the same today. So we can't really put that much grief to Adam and Eve, but they, they did not worship in truth. And as a result, the biggest problem occurred on the earth. That should tell us how important proper, correct, and quick worship is. So the first sacrifice was after Adam and Eve fell, and they knit together fig leaves for themselves, which again, uh, I've said this several times, that a fig leaf is a great garment to wear until about three or four days later. When you when you sit down and it's dried out, and you sit down and it goes... You're like, oh, does anyone have a fig leaf? Because mine just cracked. (laughs) It does this every three or four days. It's just really a problem. So they had an imperfect solution to their problem, which rings true for us, as a result that they did not worship correctly. Now, God stepped in and brought the perfect sacrifice. This is irony. I love irony because there's really not as much irony as we think. You know, people always think things are ironic. Uh, was that Alanis Morissette has that song about, isn't it ironic? 90% of the things she sings about is not ironic. It's all coincidence. Yeah, it's coincidence. It's not irony at all. Irony is when the fire station burns down. The group responsible for keeping fires from happening, if their house burns down, that is ironic. So here, the God that receives worship and requires it, demands it, provides for it, he's the one that, in a sense, worshiped the creation. He sacrificed some animals, and with their skin, he didn't just go to the closet and pull out some furs. Something had to die as a result of their sin, and he clothed them with his grace. It's a type of salvation that we will see again. He was already beginning to tell the story of what Jesus would do thousands of years later on a cross on Calvary in order to keep sal- keep worship happening as a result of salvation. He saved them. We see that type of salvation where God sacrificed 
Huge irony in that. But he was painting a picture of how to properly respond to him. And that sin and doing the wrong thing really matters. It is a big, big deal. Another example of a big deal when sin happens and worship doesn't. Cain and Abel, they were doing what probably they all did. You know, they were all worshiping God by sacrificing. Adam and Eve were probably telling the story of how they fell and how big of a deal it was. And you know what happens after you make a mistake? Hopefully you are more true and on than ever before. We lived in Atlanta and Marietta. In fact, we were there last weekend. I'll see my niece get, uh, get graduated. And, uh, if you know about Marietta, that's where the big chicken is. It's Kentucky Fried Chicken with this huge chicken there. You know big chicken? Any big chicken people? Yes? Good. Okay, good. So my Atlanta friends. Well, down from the big chicken is Whitewater Water Park. Whitewater. You know that. Uh, we have a splash town. Well, when I was working there at, at uh, Roswell Street Baptist Church in Marietta between 98 and 2000, somewhere in there, there was this E. coli problem at Whitewater. Kids were getting sick and they had to shut down the park. Well, then it reopened. I said, let's go to Whitewater. And my wife said, have you not been paying attention? There was sin happening there. You understand what I'm saying? And I said, well, they had a problem. But I bet after the problem now, they've reopened that Whitewater in Marietta, Georgia is the cleanest water park in the world because they're bending over backwards checking every system. They probably have 10 or 20 people going over every little part of their system to making sh- to make sure that it is working properly. For us, that is to worship the right way. So when we sin and mess up, hopefully it brings us to the point that after that, and we ask for forgiveness and we confess that sin, that we are the best worshipers around because we're so grateful for the second chance or the fifth chance or the hundredth chance, unlike Satan, who did not get the same grace, was not afforded to him. We have that grace, a bigger deal to worship. So when Cain and Abel, they, they led, they, they offered their sacrifice, one of grain, one of an animal. So it doesn't matter, you know, what, the, what it is. It had to do with their heart. And in the end, God received the worship of Abel. He was able to worship correctly. That's how I remember the difference. Abel was able to worship and Cain's sacrifice was not accepted, not because it was different. His was the animal. His sacrifice was not accepted because it was an issue of the heart. So it's not as important as what goes on on the outside, which is very important. Even more important is what is happening on the inside when you worship, whether it's you're coming to church, whether it is you loving your family, whether it is you being a man, a woman of integrity in the workplace, whatever it is that you do and where you go as you worship God by doing the things he's called you to do. As you do that, you are worshiping, but it's what the motivation, what goes on in the heart really matters to God. And it is a deal breaker. It's a deal breaker when your heart is wrong, regardless of what goes on the outside. This is important to know that our motivations must always be checked. It's constant. It never ends. So Abel, I'm sorry, Cain kills Abel because worship is such a passionate thing. He cared so much about and was so sorry that what he did, he was trying to fix the problem on his own that his brother's sacrifice would never be accepted over his again. (laughs) Well, it doesn't work that way. But it just goes to show how passionate Worship is and the problems that occur when we do not worship God correctly. Let's move on to Noah. 
So Noah was a man after Adam and Eve, years have passed, and the people were just doing great, right? I see your head shaking, no. In Noah's day, were the people doing great or they were doing horrible? Horrible, so bad, so bad that it was another deal breaker. God said, I regret that I made man and I want to destroy him except for the one righteous man and his family. A little bit of grace there probably. But I will excuse them and I'm going to kill everybody else. And he did it immediately, didn't he? Did he? How many? 120 days of grace that God said, look, Noah, I'm going to destroy the world unless they repent. Why don't you build an ark? And it's going to be so big, it'll take you 120 years or so to build it. And as you build, what does the scripture say that Noah did? Sorry, I can't talk to you, bunch of sinners. I've got to build a boat so God can save me. No, he preached righteousness to everyone he came in contact with, which he probably came in contact with a lot of people because when you're building a really big boat that's never been needed or used before, it will attract attention. Sometimes God will do something in your life to attract attention. Maybe he'll have you build an ark. Maybe he'll give you cancer. Maybe he will dissolve the relationship between or allow the dissolved relationship between you and your family member. Do something that will cause people to pay attention to see how you're going to respond on the inside, which gives exudes how you will react on the outside, whether or not you will worship, whether or not you will not worship. Sometimes God does things in our lives to get attention of other people so that when we're preaching, whether it's righteousness or whether we're preaching, hey, I've got things together, I can do this. Oh, look at my kids. Well, how's the weather? We, we can preach that. Whatever it is you're preaching in your life, when you're, you're around the people that you love and that you care about, you're worshiping somebody, God, yourself, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's that job that you love, could be the car in the garage, I don't know, whatever it is. You're going to be worshiping something and you say, my goodness, can I appreciate a good car? I guess so. Just don't make it more than God. If you talk about your car 20% of your time, you need to at least talk about God 21% at least. You know what I mean? Noah preached righteousness. He was constantly preaching to the people for them to repent. They did not. And God saved Noah and his family through the ark. Now, moving on to Abraham. This is where it gets interesting that God up to this point, had revealed himself to some degree. People were talking about him. Now God said, I will show people how to worship. I'm going to create out of nothing a nation. I'm going to build the nation of Israel. You realize that wasn't just a nation that God adopted and said, hey, I want to use you guys for a while. He said, Abraham or Abram, I am going to make a nation out of you. And we're going to change the name. I'm going to give you a name, Israel. What I'm saying is real, right? Understand what I'm saying? It's real that he created this. This is real that he created Israel out of Abraham. And when he did, he said the, the, the sands in the, on the shore are going to be, uh, your descendants will be more numerous than that. I'm going to make this huge nation out of you. So finally he says, okay, uh, how are you going to do that? Because we don't have any kids. And then did God go ahead and give him a kid real quick to increase his faith? He made him wait. Have you ever had to wait on the Lord? Any waiters in here? I don't mean at the restaurant. I just mean you're waiting on God to do something because you are unhappy. 
I hope you're worshiping in that unhappiness. Because here we have Abraham. He finally got his son. And what does God ask him to do? Worship. He asks him to worship. That answer should come before sacrifice because that's what sacrifice is. He asked him to worship. Isn't it strange sometimes when God asks us to worship, we don't understand it as worship. We think God's just given us a hard time or, or maybe we're being tested or, or all these things that, that just don't make sense. And we spend our time praying that God would reverse and change. And God says, no, I want you to worship me and I'm going to make you the best worshiper. Because while you go through this trial, you're either going to choose me 100% or you're going to go far away from me. And I would just soon you do one or the other. Don't be lukewarm. Don't do that. So he says, tells Abraham what to do. Abraham finally says, son, we're going to, or he tells his wife, we're going to, I'm going to take Isaac, my son. We're going to go up and we're going to worship. That sounds a lot better than, uh, yeah, we're going to take up and kill our kid, and then uh, we'll see what else God has in store. Mom would not be happy. We're going to go and worship. They go with a couple of servants, help them go along. They get there to the mountain. He says, son and I, we're going to go from here alone. Uh, we got the wood. we got everything. We're going to go up, and we're going to worship. The whole time, Abraham understood worship here to be the same type of sacrifice that was happening all around him as they sacrificed animals in order to gain atonement temporarily. Now he would have to sacrifice his son. God was just beginning to reveal himself to Abraham. He didn't understand that, well, maybe maybe now God is going to require human sacrifices. I don't know. I'm just going to have to see how this works out. But I think he was expecting to kill his son and, and trust God whatever he's going to do. But he goes and we know that before he does kill the son, he says, stop. And in the thicket was a ram and it was brought out and it was actually a substitute for his own son to be sacrificed. Abraham understood what God would do thousands of years later when God would send his son to be our substitute. And a picture during Israel's temple time of the scapegoat where they would take two goats and cast lots for one to be the, the goat that would be killed and atone for sin while the other goat would be released, hence the name, the scapegoat out of God's picture of grace. Perfect teaching, again, all about worship. Melchizedek, so uh, Abraham met up with him later on after a war. He was victorious and the king of righteousness, the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, this is kind of a neat little Easter egg here that here we have Abraham who's going to create or be a part the ground floor of the nation of Israel that would one day reside right where uh, Melchizedek here is the king of righteousness, which we also, we've talked about him a lot. He was probably a Christophany, Christ there meeting up, uh, having a conversation, uh, one who would eventually be a sacrifice, one who almost had to sacrifice his son, kind of a neat little uh, moment there of worship. Also, Abraham gave him a tenth of his booty from the war showing a, a tithe, a picture of a tithe of giving back to and worshiping God. Joseph and his brothers uh, had a rough time growing up. Let's fast forward to they come to him for help, not realizing that it's their brother. They just came to Egypt where they had some grain and they had some supplies. And at this point, Moses could choose not to worship with the power that he had to be able to say, ah, I'm going to get back at these human horizontal relationships that did me bad. What did he choose to do? Love them by meeting their need. He did that as worship to God. A quintessential point of 
choosing to worship or to not worship. And he could have been so angry of all the horrible things that happened in his life. He was motivated to not worship God. He chose to worship God. It's a picture for us that in spite of our circumstances, we need to look at how we will respond on the inside, which is worship, and then fulfill it on the outside, which is worship. Moses, uh, anybody in the first service or the 930 service just a second ago? My father-in-law preached today. So this is a big Etheridge Johnson family preaching at Champion Forest today. My father-in-law preached in the chapel and he's preaching right now in the chapel and in the 930 service. Uh, he talked about Moses and he was still in some of my thunder because when Moses' mom took Moses, who was supposed to be killed, took him and put him inside the basket, what did Mark remind us that the basket really is an, an ark. He put him in an ark, which was a type of salvation. Same is true for, for Noah, who put God put them in the ark. You realize that that ark is a picture, a type of salvation worthy of worship because when Noah got off the ark, what was the first thing he did? He built an altar and he gave thanks to God. One of the best ways and most forgotten way that we worship God. We don't give thanks as much as we should. We're busy praying when the situation is dire and after it's over, we're like, oh, thanks God. But do you get down on your knees? Do you prostrate yourself? Do you shakar? Do you proskaneo and give thanks to God? Make a really big deal out of thanksgiving? I would love for us as the church in 2018 to say, you know what? We need to be thanking more. So I've asked all of you guys to pray for this situation. This is what happened, good or bad. It doesn't matter. It happened and we trust God. Let's give thanks together. Do you send that email out after the prayer email? We only get the prayer emails and you're like, well, I send out a praise. Let's make a big deal to thank God because that's one of the best ways that we can worship him. So when Noah in the ark, the type of salvation, when they went into the ark, they went in and do you know who closed the door? God closed the door. God's the one that saved them and he sealed the door. Just like Ephesians 1, 7 says that we are sealed in the spirit when we come to faith. It's like being in an ark when the water floods comes up and arises, the difficulties of the day, and God seals us in and protects us because he is protecting us. That was a picture of what he would do finally in through Jesus Christ later on. So Moses was too in an ark and it saved him. Moses had an interesting life. He kind of ran from God, came to God, interesting relationships, interesting stories, But when God called him, he responded. He was a little sketchy at first, but he responded to do the right thing, to do what he was not prepared to do. You understand that? Moses was not, he did not go to school to save and lead his people out of Egypt. He did not go to leadership school and learn how to meet with pharaohs and and bargain with them. He was not good at that. He even by his own admission said, I cannot even talk well. Who did God choose to be the spokesman of himself? The guy that couldn't talk, the guy that was not prepared. And he asked him, he he commanded him to, to do what God called him to do. He said, I'll be with you. If Moses could do it, it wouldn't be very worshipful. It'd be easy worship, easy worship, which is okay. That's hard worship when you're not prepared, you don't want to, and you're like, God, this can't be of you because don't you only ask us to do things that we're prepared for and that are in our spiritual gift mix and that we have the talents for because that's what I'm used to. No, God calls us to do what we are not prepared and not ready to do. And when you obey, however it works out, that is good worship. 
Mount Sinai, Moses went and for the first time the law was given, it was written by the hand of God. The first 10 commandments that he got first before the rest of the law exemplified the importance of worship. The first four commandments were what? Love God, this is how to relate to God. The last six were how to relate to man, which was still a worship to God. The law exemplifies the importance of worship. Then in the wilderness, the camp, we already talked about that. Uh, real quick on David, King David. A lot of times I talk about King David when he was at the threshing floor and, and, and was wanting to sacrifice to God because of the relent of the disaster that God brought. And the guy who owned the land was just like, here, take my oxen and here's some wood, do whatever you need to do. And, and David said, no, I will not sacrifice to the Lord what costs me nothing. I won't do that because he understood that worship must engage sacrifice. If your worship is easy that you don't feel like there's much of a sacrifice, that's okay. Just make some changes because worship should always have and engage sacrifice. And when it does, it's more meaningful. But you remember David after his sin with Bathsheba and the, the son was born, the, the, the son that was born through their sinful relationship at the time and it was sick and dying. What did David do while the child was dying? He was fasting. He was praying. He was doing all the things that we do. And then when the child died, what did he say? He, he, he said that, but he went and he, and he worshiped. He said, I will go and worship. In the middle of the most devastating thing in your life, after it's final and ended and you know it's not what you were looking for, are you going to go and worship? Some of the best worship happens in the ashes and pit of our own despair. Isaiah, last week, Mark talked about Isaiah 6 and the response of Isaiah in the temple. He went to worship to do his thing and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. I was in the worship service at 9.30 and one of the songs started, a little bit of smoke started coming out. You know, they do that to kind of make the lights pop. Um, that was nothing compared to just filled with it's so thick you couldn't even see the whole thing filled the temple the glory the Shekinah glory of the Lord filled the temple it was an aha moment for Isaiah the opportunity to do something totally unexpected he knew that something was up there were uh, the seraphim and they had six wings with two they flew if you read this in Isaiah 6 Angelic beings, with two they covered their head, and with two wings they covered their feet. Again, the middle two they flew, which was a picture of service. The other four wings, the other two sets, were dealing with worship. They were not looking upon God as they honored him, and they covered their feet, which are dirty and gross, that they would cover their feet before God while they were flying serving him. The priority of the wings of the seraphim point to the priority of worship. But in this moment, it's more about Isaiah who because of seeing God for who he is and God revealing himself in a very real way, Isaiah realized the depravity of not only the people around him, which we are quick to put the people around us down. They are so bad. I wish they could heard that sermon. I wish they would go to church. I wish they, I wish they, I wish they. He said, I am among the people that, that, that I dwell with of unclean lips. Later, Isaiah would say that they, they honor God, or God would actually tell Isaiah, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
The heart is important. Isaiah, in response to God, his, his act of worship was not to sing a song. His act of worship was to confess his sin. He was atoned as the tongue was taken from the altar and placed upon his mouth, as Mark said last week, that he would be commissioned to be God's spokesman as a prophet of God. He needed to be clean. He needed to confess. And in that act of worship, God said, who will go for us? And it might not have been convenient, but Isaiah said, well, here am I. (laughs) I'm confessed. I'm forgiven. I'm atoned. I guess I'm ready for whatever it is you want me to do, which maybe wasn't what I was thinking. Isaiah worshiped not only through the confession of sin, getting real with God, but by saying yes, not knowing what it actually entailed and then doing it. Beautiful. It's the quintessential passage on worship in the Old Testament. John chapter four is the quintessential chapter on worship in the New Testament. Jesus is with the woman at the well which was a big deal, a little irony there because she was a Samaritan. But let's jump up to her changing the story, the tenor of the conversation. And she brings it to worship. And Jesus is like, that is not at all what we were talking about. But he said something profound there that should affect you and our understanding of worship thereon. She was concerned about the place of worship. The Jews do it here, the Samaritans here. What's right? Come on, give me some some uh, props here. I, I want to be able to go back and say, we know what we're doing. And he blew her mind and said that the Father, now is, and there's coming a time, that the Father is seeking true worshipers. Those who worship him in spirit and in truth. So it's not just that we should worship. God is Actively seeking out true worshipers. If you want to get closer to God, find a way to worship Him in spirit and in truth. That your spirit is doing everything it knows, that it's learned and that it's knowing, and that by exuding itself through the outside of my outward actions, I'm doing what my inner spirit is doing, and I am worshiping God in the absolute best amount of truth that I know. God is seeking you. And it's at that time that you are being sought and God can come closer to you. It should involve confession. It should involve forgiveness. It should involve you restoring relationships to other people that we won't have time to talk about today. But read John chapter four. It will bless your life because God was saying something about how to relate to him One of the biggest statements in the New Testament. Paul, where did he go to church? Well, he spent a lot of time in prison. However, when he was out witnessing, he went, uh, spent a lot of time in the tabernacle or, or the temple for him. And he went to, on the Sabbath and he would tell people about Jesus. The Jews that were still coming to the tabernacle, to the temple, they were still coming because they were still worshiping God in spite of Jesus. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. They were still doing the old thing. He was bringing, he was preaching righteousness to them like Noah, like Moses, like so many others, like hopefully you, preaching righteousness, finding a way, going to the uncomfortable places. You know, they didn't like Paul there with the Jews, didn't like Paul because what did he spend his time doing? Killing them. So so God, you're going to send me to the people that hate me now in order to help them to uh, come to Christ. He said, Jesus said, yeah, you're going to help the the Gentiles, the Greeks, but you're also going to save some Jews. Yeah, I'm going to put you in that uncomfortable position and I want to receive your worship as you're obedient and you're quick, immediate to do that. The first church, they spent all their time doing what? Breaking bread, listening to the teaching of the apostles, 
devoting themselves to prayer. They were worshiping. They weren't going to church to see all the lights and the sound. They were going to relate to one another and they were probably spending a lot of time talking about what God was doing in their life the previous week. They weren't going because someone had planned a service. They were, you know, let's meet in Lydia's house. We'll hang out there for a while. And when they get together, what were they doing? Wow, did you, God did this in my life. God showed me this. He put me in this uncomfortable situation. I don't even have a PhD in that subject. God wanted me to, and I did, and this is what happened. They were encouraging one another. That is worship. And then finally, Mark said, Brent, Brent, please be sure to mention the throne room that we see in Revelation chapter 4. When the 24 elders were around the throne, who's seated on the throne? The slain lamb who was sacrificed for the salvation of the world. He is the one sitting on the throne. And Mark said, remind them that it's that slain lamb that everyone in heaven is worshiping. And the 24 elders, it says that they, they constantly, they don't cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. It's the same thing that the seraphim were saying when Isaiah met them in the temple. He saw a picture of throne room worship brought down to earth, Isaiah did. And now John is getting a peek at the same thing. And, and, and when the 24 elders said that, or uh, actually it was the, the four living creatures. They're the ones that said that. And when they said that, the 24 elders would cast their crowns down to the lamb who was slain. They were proskuneo, understand? They were prostrating themselves. They were bowing themselves and, and giving an offering. And it says that every time that the four living creatures said, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, that the 24 elders would cast down their crown. So then they would do that. And then the four living creatures, what would they do? They would say it again because they did not cease to say it. And so when they said it again, what did the elders have to do? Pick up their crown and cast it down again. It's a constant picture of humbling and revering the Lord Jesus Christ for what he did. That's a picture of the throne room in heaven. So as we close out the uh, points for home, Simply from Psalm 96, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord a new song, all the earth. That we as worshipers don't need to get into a rut. We need to be sure that we are worshiping in creativity. Have you ever wanted to tell the music guy, don't teach us any more new songs? Have you ever wanted to say that? They don't because that would be unworship because we're supposed to sing new songs. But do we have to every week? Maybe. I don't know. I'm not in charge of that. And it's fun to sing the old songs and they're still there and we're still going to sing those. But don't ever limit someone from doing something new because that's one of the best ways to worship, not to mention it's a command of God. We have to get the perspective right, not our own desire. Don't worship yourself when you come to church. Worship God. And he says, sing a new song. It doesn't even have to be a song. Do something new as you worship him. Walk across the street and talk to that neighbor that you have sworn after the last five experiences that you would not give him grace. God receives the worship. That is creative worship. And that is what we are created to do. Preach righteousness. Second thing, sacrifice. I know I said this the last time we talked about worship, but that your worship must engage in sacrifice. Here's where David said, I will not sacrifice to the Lord what cost me nothing. How many times do we, by default, 
not by what we say, but by what we do. Sacrifice that is so simple. It's still worship, and I'm not giving you a hard time. Just make sure that you ramp it up as you go in your maturity of faith. And the last thing is, if you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. He gave the law, the Torah, for us. And even though we're saved from the law, the law demonstrates our sin, reminds us that we are not good enough, and causes us to ask for, or to confess, to ask for forgiveness, which all of that is worship. And then... We're prepared like Isaiah to say, okay, I'm ready now. Send me. What do you have now? I I am so over myself and my own personal desires. And I've apologized to Brent Dyer for telling him to sing a new song. And now I am ready to move on, God. I'm so excited about what you have in store for me. And God says, hang on just a moment. I'm going to receive that worship. And he does. He loves that worship. It is the most important thing. That's why we were created. That's why the angels were created. It has everything to do with everything that we do, worshiping God. It must engage something new and creative. It should engage uh, sacrifice. And finally, obedience. Here he says to, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Samuel told uh, Saul, who tried to do something on his own, kind of worship his own way. He said, obedience is far better than sacrifice. Obey, obey. And if you obey, you have to know what to obey, right? So just by sitting here today and paying half attention to this guy, you are worshiping God, has nothing to do with me, has everything to do with the Lord God Almighty. I'm thankful, but in the end, I can't say, oh, all these people came to hear me speak because they probably just came to hear Mark Lanier speak. So it has nothing to do with me. So that sets me down a couple of notches. That's okay. And I can worship God in my humility thanking God for the opportunity to just share with you guys for a few minutes a little bit of things that he has taught me from a sophomore in high school when I read that little book. And then as he brought me along, and of course he's still teaching me, a lot of you could do the same thing. You could get up here and you could share your testimony of how you worship God in spite of the horrible situations that have gone on in each of your lives. We're going to pray and ask the Lord's blessing on us today. We're going to ask him to be merciful to us and gracious, something the angels cannot get. But let's not presume upon the Lord when we ask for his grace. Paul says, shall we sin more that grace may abound, knowing that you're going to get off the hook? Shall we just go ahead and do it? It's a strong negative in the Greek. May it never be. God, please teach me. So we're going to pray in just a moment. I know the cards are still going around and you may not have had a chance to sign the card. Um, if you if you start walking to the back, you may find one and huddle around it and you get a chance to sign to do a little bit of worship to Mark in response to what he is through God being a prophet, being a teacher of God and his word into our lives to say thank you to him. Uh, these are going to be in the back. I encourage you to go. We're going to mail those to him and then he'll get that faith, hope and love and be reminded of who you are in his life. And that will mean a lot to him while he is on trial worshiping God. Uh, he's in Idaho right now, not wanting to be there. He wants to be right here. But because of the situation that he's able to speak into the lives of people, to speak life into the lives of people, he is there doing what he does best, that only he would get a hearing with those people. What an awesome opportunity. Thank you, Mark Lanier, for worshiping the Lord. Help us to do the same. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you with our heads bowed in a slight act of worshiping you with our outer body. Our outward appearance, and Father, we hope, we ask that you would help us to bow our hearts 
before you, a holy and awesome God, because we know that it is our heart that you are really looking at. You are looking at the inner me, the inner you. Father, as you hear our prayer, this is it. Oh Lord, be gracious to us. Let your mercies be abundant because of our stupidity, because of our selfishness, because of our love for so many things other than you. I pray with all sincerity that for me and these friends, that you would humble us by engineering circumstances that put us in situations that are hard and difficult and that we have no other choice and no other way to look but you. And that as you receive that worship, that we are man and woman enough to begin to confess our sins to you, that we would confess our sins to one another, to absolutely change relationships that we have with other people. And as a result, we honor you for doing exactly what we're created to do. Help us not to be dainty of our preaching righteousness to those around us because we live in a sinful and a hurting in a dying world. And we see so much hurt on our own streets and cul-de-sacs and our own businesses, our schools, our bridge club. And if we're not, if we miss it, if we don't see the hurting heavenly father, please open our eyes that we could see the hurt and the misery that we could cry out to you for help, not to fix the problem, but for a bigger response of salvation and change. Our Heavenly Father, today we lift up Mark Lanier and thank you for his work and service to you. And I know that Mark is not perfect. I pray that you would protect him from the evil one. Help him not to be disqualified from the great opportunities that he has to be your spokesman. Heavenly Father, I pray your strength and your love to him. And I pray the exact same thing to every person in this room. We're not perfect. I pray that you would empower us by your spirit, remind us of who you are and what we are to be and to do it to your glory. And we pray it in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.